0: A few years ago, Bill Bennett wrote a book called The Book of Virtues. And though some weeks later he was shown to be a man with clay feet like you and I, the words of his book still ring true. And I I would add, in light of the intense scrutiny and the charges of hypocrisy that many on the left in this country and some even on the right threw down at him, he was, even through the midst of that controversy and storm, able to exhibit... What is fast becoming a vanishing virtue in our country, and in, I think in the church, and that is the virtue of humility. From Muhammad Ali's, I am the greatest, and those of us who are a little older will remember that, those of you who are younger, it's just a part of the historical records, to a little child's temper tantrum, we are not very humble people. Oh, some of us may hide it better than others, and we may not realize just how much pride and how little humility we actually have, but it is true. And I believe this morning's message will demonstrate that truth ever so clearly to you and to me. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 18. And in this chapter, I know Pastor Brian has, has taught through the Gospel of Matthew, and so I don't want to you know, change anything that he said, but... This passage, especially verses 21 through 35, have become very precious to me over time. And hopefully you will see why as we get into it a little more. But I take just a little bit different approach than he has with this text. And again, I think you will understand why when we get to it. But Matthew tells us the disciples ask here in verse 1, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it seems like kind of an odd question in light of the flow of Matthew's gospel as a whole. And, uh, but when you add in Luke and Mark's account, which we'll not look at, one realizes that they had been disputing amongst themselves. The twelve, as they were going with Jesus, were actually arguing, debating, who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so they appeal to the one who would know, to the Lord Jesus. And I, I, I can't help but love these guys, because they're a lot like you and me, are they not? They're on the ground floor of something very good. They're, they're with the one they believe to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. The one whom they're growing day by day to understand is something a little bit more than a man, and so the good thing, the gravy train is going to come And they're on the ground floor, sort of like when you start with one of those companies. You get the, the shares of stock, and as the company takes off, suddenly you're a multimillionaire. It might be only on paper, but you become a multimillionaire or billionaire overnight. And so they're looking at something very good, and they want to know which of us is the greatest, or will be, or who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And... I marvel at that because writing years after the event, I wonder if Matthew didn't shake his head and kind of chuckle and wonder, you know, we were pretty presumptuous. We were really filled with a lot of pride to debate who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, look at us. I'm a, I was a publican, a sinner. Peter, you know, right foot in. Right, right foot in left foot in, Judas betrayed him, John, everybody thinks is so warm and cuddly, I mean, he's the son of thunder. Who are we to think that we should dispute over who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? How humbling to include in your gospel the story of your own pride and vanity. That aside, the question is asked... And being the master teacher he was, Jesus took a little child as an object lesson, and that is what it was. He was not teaching about child baptism. word doesn't appear in the text. He's not teaching about child salvation. He's using a child as an illustration. Why? For a couple of reasons. Fewer hang-ups. Children take things at face value. Their faith in their parent, their faith in their favorite team, their faith in their favorite teacher their faith in their favorite player. It's boundless even in the face of great disappointment. Is it not? They still have faith even when the whole world seems to tell them it's not going to happen. But they still have faith. Secondly, they have few, if any, rights in this world and therefore easily taken advantage of and despised. Now, that may not be necessarily the case in America but in the rest of the two-thirds of the world, it is. The one who always suffers, in 80% of the world, the decisions of a government, the decisions of a family, the, the, the flagrant abuse of power, whether in the family or in the government, the ones who always suffer are the children. And so it's not a very prestigious position to be in. There's nothing special in many of their worlds of being a child. They're not held in the esteem as they are here in the West. And so Jesus moves from a child to a lost sheep. And please note, this is not a debate about an unsaved person or a saved person. This is a sheep who belongs to a shepherd and is lost. And so the shepherd expends energy. He diligently looks for the lost sheep. He then says, it's not the will of the Father that any of these little ones should perish. Ah, Here's proof that he's talking about children or babies. Fine, I'll accept that for a moment. But let me ask you this. What about verses 15 through 35? Is Jesus suddenly switching horses in the middle of the stream? That is what you're saying if he's really concentrating on children and about children only, and not about their humility in their smallness and their insignificantness. And the last time I checked, more often than not, you get wet when you try to switch horses in the middle of a stream. Or is it possible? Is it possible? Jesus is showing us what humility and compassion look like. I would submit to you, humility is the focus here in verses 15 through 35, provide a context in which great humility is essential for reconciliation and for forgiveness. You know verses 15 through 20 deal with church discipline. Did you know that discipline in the church is an issue of humility? It is an issue of humility for people and for the church. It is the church admitting we're made up of a group of sinners. And what do sinners do? They sin. And sometimes they sin more than they want to, Sometimes they sin more than they should, and it has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. We often pout and shout, and we fuss and we fight, but our Father in heaven said so, so we must obey. So it is an issue of obedience. Secondly, none of us like to be rejected. I don't, and I'm sure most of you don't either. We don't want to seem judgmental, which is often what we're accused of. Oh, you're just being judgmental. No, we're actually with fear and trepidation realizing that could be me. And if people could see my heart on certain days, it would be me. But as I cast my cares on him, And I bow before him in confession, day by day walking with him. I want to help restore my brother or my sister or that family as much as I want to be restored, if that should befall me as well. Third, we're afraid of skeletons in our closet. We're afraid of the backlash that might come when people realize we're not maybe as perfect as they thought we were. Fourth, it takes time. And we, in this day and age, are busy people, are we not? We might have to get involved, and that may require time and effort, more than we care to spend on that person or situation. What is the common denominator in all of that? Me, my, and I. And isn't that pride? And if it's pride, where is humility? Where is the humility? It simply has vanished. Properly understood, church discipline is one of the most humbling things that you will ever do or be a part of. Because it will lay your heart bare. Galatians 6.1 You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual, not you who are perfect, not you who have no sin in your life. But you who have dealt with the sin as best as you can, you don't know of anything that moment, but oh, be careful, as Paul says later in Galatians 6, because you may be tempted just as that person is tempted, so don't you go overboard. Bear their burden with them. I submit to you, it requires a great deal of humility. It opens you to the door of being it opens the door to being attacked from within as Satan speaks to you, as your flesh cries out and says, Oh, you're the holy one, you're going to and it will remind you of your sins and the failings and the need of God's grace every moment of every day. And you'll be confronted with the fact that you are responsible for going out and rescuing that lost lamb. And why Jesus uses a lamb, I don't know, because sometimes they're not lambs, they are ferocious bears that will bite you and scratch you. So somehow that furry little animal got changed into, morphed into another beast. And that is very humbling and very scary. Last but certainly not least, we're... Acting on Christ's behalf. Well, if that's not humbling enough, consider verses 21 through 35. How humble are you? Well, let me ask you this How forgiving are you in me? That will answer that question. So let's read the passage and we'll come back and we'll look at each part. And in this passage, I think there are five overlooked principles. Those should be in the back of your outline, outline in the back of your bulletin. Uh, five principles of forgiveness that demonstrate to you humility. Matthew writes this, Then Peter, after this, came and said to him, Lord, how often shall, I forgive, shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom, in light of that, therefore... The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he, when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children. It's debtor's prison. Those of you from England, remember that from the history? Throw you in jail until the debt was paid. Right? you are going to throw him in prison and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, prostrating, fell down before him, fell flat on his face, saying over and over, Master, Master, have patience, have mercy with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant, that king, was moved with compassion and released him. He freed him. And forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Roughly a hundred days wages. And he laid hands on him. Not just laid hands on him. He took him by the throat saying, Pay me! So his fellow servants fell down at his feet. Begged him Prostrated himself, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him so my Heavenly Father will do to each of you if from your heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Verse 27. Verse 27. The master of that servant was moved with compassion. He released him and forgave him the debt. Beloved, forgiveness doesn't always require compensation, but it does require compassion. It does require compassion. I'm not suggesting there shouldn't be restitution. As I said in the first service, I tell you, if you stole my car, I'd rather you pay me back when the cops catch you than spend three years making license plates in Deer Lodge. Right? License plates don't help me. I need my car back. So I'd rather you got out of jail, worked, And paid me back over time. I I could live with that. Or got that little ankle bracelet so they could keep track of you, so we know you're not gonna run out of state. Pay it back. That can't always be the case though. There are some things that happen you can't pay back. How do you pay back adultery? How do you pay back someone you've abused? There are some things you can't make restitution for. I'm not suggesting there are consequences. Verses 15 and 20 talked about, at least in the church context, there are consequences, and we know in our society from our laws, there are consequences for grand theft auto. There are consequences for manslaughter. There are consequences for perjury, right? Or should be. So we know there are consequences. But there can't always be restitution. Sometimes something is said or done that cannot be undone because the person who did it has died. What do you do when someone has grievously sinned against you, abused you, used you, mistreated you, cheated you, and they die? what, What do you do? You spend the rest of your life bearing that anger and resentment and the root of bitterness? Years ago at the treatment center at I Am Third Ranch, I worked with the young guys, many of you know that, doing the fourth and fifth steps. I'm not here to glamorize those. I'm just simply saying I think that was part of the AA thing that's really good. And the fourth step is where you confess, the fourth step is where you take a rigorous moral inventory of your life or we might say as believers, you to, to take a look in the inside and see what you did and what others did to you, the pride, the vanity, the anger, the hate, the hurt, You fill in the blank. It's many, many pages long. And the fifth step is where you confess to God, another human being, and yourself the exact nature of your wrongs and the wrongs that were done to you. And the purpose behind it was so you could look at it And say, yes, that was bad. And some of those young men, and beloved, I I heard stories I wish no one would ever hear incredible stories. And it's in the record, it's in the police record. The things would be in the file of abuse, of being abused, and of abusing, of being for your grandparent or another adult, an uncle or an aunt or a sister or a brother, physically abusing, sexually and physically, emotionally, verbally where people participated in drive-by shootings and where people died and were killed and they killed people in accidents because they were drinking and driving or they are high on some other drug. What do you do when someone has done that or when you've done that and that person died and you can't go to them and say, forgive me for having sinned and hurting you and taking your life. What do you do? Well, one of the things we'd do, I'd have them write a letter of forgiveness. I'd have them look at Scripture and see see what God has done for you in Christ. This is what He asks of you. And when you've confessed that sin, 1 John 1, tear that up, burn it up. When you've released your anger, when you've forgiven that other person, tear it up, burn it. It's your past. Day by day, you may have to over-say, Lord, oh, I'm angry again, but I've forgiven that person. At least transactionally let go, because relationally you can't ever make that different if the person is dead. But transactionally in your own life, you can let go of it. But that requires compassion. Beloved, sometimes when things happen, all we will get is a sincere confession and an apology. And that should be sufficient. The master did not require payment of the servant. Why? Because he couldn't pay it. I mean, again, if you look at this list, depending on, and I looked the last several weeks at different sources, if this is a silver talent, silver talent, anywhere from 360000 to $384,000 per talent, so that gives you a price of 3 dollars or $3.8 billion. If it's a gold talent, somewhere in the neighborhood of $14 billion. Now, let me ask you, do you have $3.8 billion or $14 billion or 14000000000 dollars I mean, think of the run of the bank. If you just walk down and say, I'm going to take all my money out. Oh, by the way, it's $14 billion. All the banks in town will close up, right? You don't have it. That's the point. It's hyperbole. He's drawing a contrast here. And by the way, if you figure this out, how many days, how many years? Well, there's 3,000 shekels to a talent, so let's multiply the number of talents. That's uh, 30 million shekels. Divide that by four. To get the number of days, that total is 7.5 million days. Now divide that by 365 days. We're not going to go 365.25. Just make it easy. It comes out to 20,547.945 years. Okay, That's when Voyager might get to Jupiter for you space people, right? 20,000 years. Could he have paid it? The answer is absolutely not. That's why Jesus put it out there. He said, he could not pay the debt. He said, be patient, I'll pay it. Like when, dude? 20,000 years? If you're lucky. Contrast that with the other servant. Verse. What does he owe? He owes 100 denarii, which there were four of those to a shekel, so he owes 25 shekels. Roughly, $128 per shekel, so that comes out to $3,200 dollars. So one has 3.8 billion. We're just going with the silver. 7.5 million days. The other owes 3,200. It will take 100 days to pay. Who do you think can pay the debt? Obviously, the one who owes the little amount. But note two, Peter's question How often do I forgive? Seven times? How did Jesus respond? No, 490. And then all bets are off. Or was he using hyperbole and saying every time you take it at face value and with compassion, realizing how much Christ forgave you, you forgive your brother. You forgive your brother. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes 7. And some of you have been in that class for a while. And uh, Lord willing, we will be done before the first of the year. But, you know, Ecclesiastes 7 has uh, meant a lot to me. And I think my family's tired of hearing it at home. But uh, over Ecclesiastes 7, we, we find those great words, Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be overly wicked. You know, don't be foolish and die young. Uh, I was going to preach on that, and they decided not to. I'm still working that through. But the part I do understand, verse 20-22, to says this, For there is not a just man, or woman, we might add, on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Wow. Wow. So sometimes those who are the quiet people... You know, the compliant child who seems, oh, they got it all together, oh, everything's right, oh, they're, oh they're so, you, you know so-and-so, he's just such a nice, nice boy. Don't be fooled. He might be compliant, and he might for the most part be good, but in his or her heart, they, somewhere along the line, have cursed a parent, cursed a teacher, cursed their sibling, cursed a classmate, cursed somebody else, in youth ministry, or Awana, or wherever it might be. Why? Because there is not a just man or woman on the face of the earth. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, do do we get that? And so, Solomon in Ecclesiastes is saying, don't take to heart everything everybody says. Why? Because you've done the same thing. Okay? Deal, Deal with your sin. Have compassion. Be forgiving. Why? Because you need forgiveness also. So it's not always an issue of restitution, but it is an issue of compassion. An issue of compassion because on the one hand, you know who you are, a forgiven sinner, still being forgiven day by day in your sanctification, and you're dealing with somebody else who maybe doesn't know that, but needs to hear it at the same time. Secondly, verses 28 through 30, don't require of others what you're unwilling to require of yourself. Notice but the servant went out. The one with the 20,000 year debt goes out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 days, and he lays hands on him. He treats him like he's a quarterback being you know, defensive end, since we're in football season, and he lays hands on him. Not only that, he grabs him by the throat. There's no penalty flag here. He grabs him by the throat and says, Pay me what you owe me. And it says this in verse 30. After the servant begged him, Have patience. I will pay. And he would not. Beloved, that is in perfect tense. He persistently refused. He would not show compassion. He would not give him time to pay he would not accept his excuses or his inability. People are often like that, are they not? Well, you just don't know what they've done. No, I don't. I know what many people have done, because I've heard hundreds of them tell me what they've done, and I know what I've done. I don't know what they did, but you know what frightens me even more? I know what I've done. Do you know what you've done? do you really know that at your base nature, you are a cosmic rebel and you are saved by grace alone to faith alone in the Lamb of God? And if you had been the only person, your sin still needed to be paid for. Do you understand that? Sometimes we require more of others than we require of ourselves. Beloved, that is not right. That is not right. We should require of them what God requires of us, to confess our sin, deal with it in a biblical manner, and then forgive. Yes, it takes time. Yes, it may take reminding yourself every day for hundreds of days that I've taken this step. I've forgiven. I'm letting go. I'm moving on. I will not hold that against him. I will not use that against him. I will not bring it up to others. Remember the, the promises? And so, Lord, help me to continue day by day. Some again might ask, how, well, how can God forgive so often we want grace and mercy and we want it our way but we get upset and forget about grace and mercy when others want theirs we sang a song wonderful merciful Savior precious Redeemer and friend it is your healing and grace that our hearts long for don't you think those who sin against you need that healing and that grace they do beloved, I, I am not. I'm not discounting your pain. I'm not discounting your sorrow. I can't think of anything more hideous than child abuse, sexual abuse, the murder before a child is born, and yet those people who perpetuate that need forgiveness. They need a Savior. As the song says, everybody needs the Lord. They need compassion. There are consequences, but they need compassion. We cannot require more of them than God requires of us. We must extend compassion. Third, Failure to recognize the depths of our forgiveness often results in our failure to forgive. Again, that was really this This man, if he really was humble and understood what the king had done for him. G- g- guy, do you, really under, do you realize you would die in prison? 20,000 years, you can't pay that debt. You, your wife, and your children. And your children's children, and your children's children, and your children's children. I mean, Jesus probably will come back before that ever sentence was ever paid off. Do you not get that, man? Wow! No! I didn't didn't realize. And that's precisely why he could not forgive his own servant. The unjust owed so much, he could not pay it. The other owed what he could pay. But he would not have the same compassion that had been extended to him. So, I believe he did not recognize the depth of his own forgiveness. The point here, one is possibly paid off the other can't. We need to start realizing the extent of our forgiveness before we demand of others, or refuse to grant forgiveness to those who have sinned against us. And this man couldn't, couldn't see that. Fourth, our responsibility is to forgive in direct proportion to the forgiveness we received. Notice what the Lord says down here at the bottom. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant as I had pity on you? Shouldn't you have done for him what I did for you? Shouldn't that be? How how much I forgave you? Do you get it? The proportion. He owes you 100 days. You owe me 20,000 years. You couldn't give him a hundred days, oh beloved. You see, without realizing, Peter was being generous in verse twenty-one. Seven times, Jesus says, "Peter, you can't keep score. You can't keep score, beloved. Not that I want you to do this exercise; it might depress some of you. Keep track of your sins this week, okay? Thought, word." Indeed. You want, you, you want me to ruin your week? Please do that. Right? Well, actually, it might be enlightening. It might be the best week you've ever had. Because we'll come to the end of it and we'll go, how could he love me? Even if it's for a fleeting second, just a thought. It comes through your mind. Something you, wa- you were going to say, but you didn't because you know it wasn't a good thing to do under the circumstances. And you keep track. And you get at the end of the week, you go, whoa, am I even saved? And my answer is yeah, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you most certainly are saved. You're just starting to realize the depth of the price that it took to pay for your sin and just how sinful and dirty we really are. Now, I don't say that to hurt anybody's self esteem. I was telling you the reality. Do we really see? And do I really understand how much I've been forgiven? I think when we do, it's much easier. We're much more willing to forgive others as well. Over in Luke 7.47, Jesus tells this same parable in a different way. And it's when He's at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus came in, and while He's reclining at the meal, a woman, prostitute, comes in. And she begins, she's in tears, and she wets his feet with her tears. She wipes his feet with her hair, which was a woman's glory. And I know for most of you ladies, that's probably true too. Can you imagine? Hey, honey, I'm going to wash your feet tonight. Okay? I'm I'm going to cry, and then I'm going to wipe your feet dry with my hair. Any of you ever do that? I don't think so. And once she's done, she takes precious oil, and she anoints his feet. And Simon the Pharisee sat in there going, whoa, whoa, this guy was a prophet. He would, know, he would know who this woman was. And Jesus knows what Simon's thinking. He says, Simon, let me tell you a story. And, and he comes to this. If you have, have a moment, keep a finger in Matthew. Let's, let's go over to Luke 7. And he says to him, verse 42 of Luke 7 There's a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, Well, I suppose the one whom was forgiven more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. And then he turns to the woman while he's still talking to Simon. He's over here, you know, he's looking at the woman, he's talking to Simon over here. And he says, See this woman? When I came to your house, you didn't give me any water to wash my feet, which was customary. You, you, you didn't greet me with a kiss, which was customary. You didn't give me any oil to anoint myself, which was customary. You said, well, that's not in the text. I know it is. I'm just emphasizing it. But this woman, with her tears, washed my feet, wiped them dry with her, and she is anointed. Who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little that's the point. And that's why I say our responsibility is to forgive in direct proportion to how we have been forgiven or the forgiveness we've received. And let me ask you, to what point have you been forgiven? It's directly behind me in a form of a cross. That is the proportion to which you and I have been forgiven. Right here. Right there there are times when I wish we would get a crown of thorns and we would hang it. And we would put some nails there. And maybe we could even use some red coloring. People say, well, that's, that's a little gruesome. It is. But would it not be a stark reminder of what it cost to pay for your sin and mine? The depths to which we've been forgiven the extent. Romans 5 8, if you've not etched that in your mind, but God demonstrates His love for us. And while we were yet sinners, when you cursed the name of Christ, when you were far away, that lost lamb, when you didn't even care about God, He died for you. That's how He demonstrated His love. Every Sunday, that's what that represents. And you know what we probably should do? Right at the base, move those, that pretty arrangement and put a mirror. So when we walk in and we look at the foot of the cross, we look in that mirror and we see ourselves. That is the payment for your sin and for mine right here. And beloved, if you cannot forgive, if you cannot forgive your brother whom you can see, how can you love the God you can't see? Basically, that's our fifth point. Verses 34 through 35, the Master says this, And his Master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you if you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Don't expect to receive or experience from God what you are unwilling to give to others. Matthew makes that very clear in the disciples' prayer. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Mark 11 brings it home. Colossians 3 says it just a little bit differently. Paul writing to the church at Colossae. He's writing to church members. And he says this. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. The Lord said through Paul to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.32, Forgiving one another, bearing with and forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven you in Christ. Just as God forgave you, a servant who doesn't deserve it, who has a penalty so high, you can't ever pay your way out of it. You can't earn it. You have to come before him, fall flat in your face, and beg for mercy and grace and healing. And he extends it. Does he not? That's how you and I are to forgive that same way. John said it this way over in First John 2. First John 2, 10 and 11. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Beloved, it is possible for children, the children of God to be blinded, to be so filled with rage, so filled with anger that it is hard to forgive themselves, forgive others, even sometimes be so angry at God because of what has happened. People who won't, or don't accept God's forgiveness. Typically, typically, don't or won't forgive others. Don't or won't accept God forgiving those they can't or won't forgive. It really is an issue of humility. Go back to that first verse in Matthew 18. What question is asked, and what is the answer? Unless you are like this, unless you are like this child, no rights. No status. Simple faith. Humble yourself and receive from God. Forgiveness, both giving and receiving, is an issue of humility. Truly saved people will exercise it in proportion to what they have received. Again, Luke 47, Those forgiven much love much. And those forgiven little love little. Won't and can't should not be. I know they are at times, but they should not be in our vocabulary, beloved. A true child will, and a true child can do all things through Christ who strengthens him or her. If those words, can't and won't, are in your vocabulary, do what Paul said, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself. Examine. Embrace Luke 7.47. Embrace Ephesians 4.32. Embrace Romans 5.8. Embrace the cross where He died in blood for you and for me. His payment. Free. He paid a debt He didn't know. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. Can you not see The Father's love. Can you not see the extent of the atonement? There isn't a sin in your life He hasn't forgiven. And He ever waits to hear the humble heart who cries out for mercy and grace and healing. Yes, there may be consequences to your sin and my sin, but there still is compassion. There is still grace. There is still forgiveness in Christ. And he wants you and I to extend that to others as his representatives here on earth. I saw Jesus one night, and I asked him, Lord, how much do you love me? He opened his arms wide and he said, this much, from the top of my beaten brow to the pierced side, to the soles of my pierced feet, from pierced hand to pierced hand, this is how much I love you. And this is how much I have forgiven you. Go and do likewise. Father, we sing that song, wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. My prayer is that those words would be true, true in my life, true in my family, true in my church family, true in all our relationships. Lord, I know there are people sitting here today, in the first service in this service, people who are not here today because of illness or travel, who have been hurt deeply by others, and even by people in this own body. And it's hard, Lord. But no harder than to look on sinful beings like us and declare us righteous in Christ. The cross was hard, but Jesus willingly endured it, despising its shame, because he knew it would bring about the salvation of men and women and boys and girls. And so may we have the great king's heart of compassion when those who owe a debt, they can't possibly pay. They can't maybe pay it because they're no longer here. But it cries out, May we have the compassion of our great God and King. May we see others as you see them. May we be able, Lord, to look at the depth of our heart and know we've been forgiven much. So may we love much. May we love you, and we may we love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, I pray that so that I, and all here, would day by day experience great gratitude, great humility, but we realize what you have done for us. May we go and do likewise. So people truly would say they are known, we are known by our love. And we ask it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.